Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, slavery, and capital punishment. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. How do urban legends begin? At what point does a true story cease to be just that and instead become a campfire tale to keep you up at night? My guess is that it happens slowly. Over the years, individual facts are replaced by more outlandish details. Eventually, the truth fades away completely, leaving behind a metaphorical skeleton dressed in rumor and speculation. The further you get from the actual event and the real people involved, the fewer voices there are to set the record straight. Sometimes there are those who stand up for the dead, restoring the good name of their loved ones. But sometimes there's no one to be that champion. So a person's truth is reduced to a ghost story. But I'd argue that if a person, let's say a woman, comes back to haunt us, it's only because she's waiting. Maybe as the centuries slip by, all she wants is for someone to finally stand up and clear her name. Welcome to Women Who Haunt Us, presented by Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. Ordinarily on this show, I take you through the life and crimes of some of history's most notorious women. But this being spooky season, we're trying something a little different. This special four-part series is all about women who, rightly or wrongly, scare the bejesus out of people. Were they criminals? Sometimes. Do they live on as ghosts? Debatable. Do they haunt us to this day? Absolutely. So far, the three women we've met haven't all been criminals, but every one of them was certainly tried in the court of public opinion. In each case, their punishments were the same, to have their legacy reduced to a simple ghost story. Today, for our last episode in the series, we'll meet a woman some called the first female serial killer in American history. According to legend, Lavinia Fisher and her husband John were a pair of the most ruthless butchers South Carolina has ever seen. And she went to her death ready and eager to meet the devil. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Bin Verified. Help chip away at the uncertainty that comes with online dating and use binverified.com, a leading platform for online background searches and people search reports. With their powerful search tools and extensive database, you could easily gather information about potential dates, which may help you find peace of mind before taking that next step. You can never be too safe when it comes to dating. Get 20% off today to help take control of your dating game. Visit binverified.com slash podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. 
Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Charleston, South Carolina, a beautiful city with small town vibes and the kind of architecture that screams history. Charleston has seen a lot over its 350 years. Not all of it good. It used to host one of the largest slave trading ports in North America, and its residents led the fight for states' rights in the lead-up to the Civil War. It's been home to naval shipyards and bases, withstood a 7.0 magnitude earthquake, and shook off a 500-acre fire. With all that in mind, it's not surprising that there are so many ghost tour companies taking locals and tourists alike on guided walks through the streets, stopping at haunted corners of the city. These places are home to restless spirits, those lost in wars or dead at the hands of slaveholders, children who died in yellow fever outbreaks, and the occasional convict hanged for their crimes. Those, the executed, are usually said to languish at the old Charleston jail on Magazine Street, where some say that over 10,000 people died. Visitors report seeing phantom jailers wandering the halls of the long-abandoned building, while others are manhandled by unseen forces. Most of the reported ghostly sightings, however, seem to revolve around one figure in particular. She's a woman wearing what is undoubtedly a wedding dress. Some people hear her whisper things to them. Others aren't unlucky enough to be that close. When these believers describe what they see to their tour guide, they'll get a nod of understanding. Oh yeah, they say, that's Lavinia Fisher. And of all the ghost stories I've told you this Halloween, Lavinia's is almost certainly the scariest, in more ways than one, because there are two very different versions, each with a unique kind of terror. The first one is all about how Lavinia was the first female serial killer in America, and it goes like this. One night in February 1819, John Peoples was making his way through South Carolina when he decided it was time to find somewhere to rest for the night. He called at the Six Mile House, which was a popular spot for weary travelers. Inside, he met the beautiful Lavinia Fisher and her husband, John. The couple were in their mid-twenties. They welcomed Peoples in and offered him a hearty meal. Once he was done eating, Lavinia brought their guest a cup of tea, but John Peoples didn't like tea, nor did he want to offend his hosts, so instead of refusing the drink or leaving it on the table, he poured it out when Lavinia wasn't looking. Then John Fisher showed him to the room they'd made up for him and wished him a good night. By this stage, Peoples was suspicious. Lavinia had asked him so many questions while he ate, what he did for work, what he hoped to trade in Charleston, and her husband had just stared at him like a creep the whole time. Now that he was alone, Peoples realized he was too scared to sleep in the house. So instead of lying in the bed, he sat himself in a rigid chair to wait out the dawn. Some hours later, Peoples was startled out of his reverie by an immense crash. Opening his eyes, he saw that the bed had disappeared, swallowed up when a trapdoor opened up beneath it. Terrified, he clambered out the window and ran from the Six Mile House as fast as he could. When he reached Charleston, he sounded the alarm, 
telling the sheriff that he'd almost been the victim of highway robbery and maybe something far more sinister. Shocked by the tale, the sheriff gathered a posse of excitable locals who rushed to the Fisher's Inn to arrest the couple. Once the Fishers were in custody, the crew started searching the building, and what they found shook Charleston to its core. There was a trapdoor leading to a cavernous cellar, inside of which were the belongings of countless travelers, along with the rotting and skeletal remains of dozens of humans. As word of this discovery made its way through the city, a gruesome picture formed. The Fishers had turned their innocent-looking inn into a literal murder house. Lavinia would charm their guests and ask them questions to figure out how much money they might have on them. If the couple decided they'd found a good mark, she'd poison them with oleander tea to make them sleepy. Once they were passed out in bed, a trapdoor would open, sending the unfortunate soul to their death. John was waiting in the cellar to beat and mutilate them. The Fishers were ruthless murderers, serial killers, the pair of them. Well, after that, it was pretty much inevitable that the couple would hang. Though Lavinia, then about 27 years old, was certain she'd be pardoned. When the judge sentenced her, she'd argued that as she was a married woman, it was illegal to execute her. I don't know if that was a real law or not, but the story goes that the judge calmly explained that if Lavinia's husband died first, she'd be a widow, which meant she was fair game. When the day came, John Fisher had to be dragged to the gallows. He made a desperate attempt to escape the noose by foisting the blame for all of their crimes on his wife. But it was no good. The coward swung. And once his body was cut down, Lavinia was also dragged, kicking and screaming, up to take his place. She donned her wedding dress for the occasion, and there are two possible reasons for that. Either she wanted to remind the governor that she was indeed a married woman, in case that made him more inclined to pardon her, or, as some accounts have it, she wanted to entice a hapless man to marry her before she swung, in the hopes that would save her. If either of those were her plan, it didn't work. As the noose was fitted around her neck, a minister was close by to offer the murderess salvation in her final moments, but she was having none of it. Spitting at the holy man, she cried out, "'Cease, I will have none of it. Save your words for others that want them. But if you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me. I'll carry it.'" Then, seemingly impatient to make her descent, she leapt from the gallows and was dead in seconds. So a dramatic end for America's first female serial killer. At least, that's how most people tell the story. But do you want to know something wild? It's all made up. The murders, the tea, the trapdoor, the cellar, the wedding dress. There are a few parts of the tale that are true, like the fact that Lavinia was hung. But if she wasn't a serial killer, then why was she put to death? Well, I'm so glad you asked, because that's what we're talking about next. Coming up, the real reason for Lavinia Fisher's untimely end. 
you tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. We're covering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Enjoy Real Horror, the Serial Killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like UGG, Samsung, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. That's Rakuten. Now back to the story. There's not a lot I can tell you about Lavinia Fisher's background because there's really no concrete information about her until her arrest in 1819. Why that is could be down to any number of reasons, but author Bruce Orr put forth an intriguing theory in his book Six Miles to Charleston. Most people writing about Lavinia describe her as generically beautiful, but at least one report used words that suggest she had a deeper skin tone than might be expected of someone of European descent. Orr looked at records and found evidence to suggest that Lavinia might have been a formerly enslaved woman, possibly of mixed race. This comes from a bill of sale listing the purchase of two enslaved women from John Fisher's uncle. One of these women was named Lavinia. It's unusual, but not wholly out of the realm of possibility that John might have met and fallen for his uncle's slave and eventually made a life with her. And even if that were the case, I can't say for sure that they were married because it seems like no one's ever found a marriage certificate for the pair. However, if Orr's theory is anywhere close to the truth, it would definitely account for the lack of records for Lavinia before her arrest. And if John was bold enough to fall in love with an enslaved woman, then you can bet his family would have distanced themselves from him, which might explain his choice of vocation. See, in 1819, Charleston benefited from Carolina's booming wagon trade. Merchants traveled hundreds of miles to reach the city's bustling wagon yards, which meant there was plenty of demand for places that offered a warm bed, a hot meal, and maybe some pleasant conversation. So inns popped up along the roads and highways leading to town. Now, as far as I can tell, there are a couple of possibilities for how the Fishers profited off this situation. The first is that they owned, or at least operated, one of these inns, the Six Mile House, so-called because of how far it was from the city. 
Just up the road was Five Mile House, then Four Mile House, and so on. Another possibility is that the pair were part of a gang of highwaymen who preyed on the merchants heading to and from Charleston. Highway robbery was a big problem at the time, and thieves were basically guaranteed a good haul. Either they targeted people heading towards the city and scored a valuable cache of whatever goods the wagon held, or they went after traders leaving the city and relieved them of whatever cash they'd made from their sales. The third option is that the Fishers did both of those things. They ran the Six Mile House and participated in highway robbery. That would certainly explain how they were wrapped up in the mess of February 1819. That month, it seems like the people of Charleston were fed up with all the highway robbery going on. It wasn't good for business or for farmers who'd reported livestock missing. So on the 16th, a mob of people mounted their horses and headed for the area around the five and six mile inns. There were reports of a large gang of thieves operating around there, and the lynch mob was determined to put a stop to it. Their first stop was Five Mile House, where they tried to evict a group of people who were gathered there. It seems they believed they were a gang of thieves, though whether they were or not isn't clear. Anyway, the people, whoever they were, refused to go. Frustrated, the mob set the inn on fire, which forced everyone inside to run for their lives. The building and everything in it was burned to the ground, but the mob wasn't satisfied. After that, they moved up the road to Six Mile House, which is the one that, according to varying accounts, the Fishers ran. The people inside that inn were easier to convince, and the building was soon empty. Happy with their progress, the mob headed back to town, leaving a man named David Ross to keep watch on the building. It seems it was his job to stop the gang of robbers if and when they tried to return to the empty inn. Well, a couple of days after that, a group did descend on Six Mile House. Presumably, it was a mix of the people the mob had kicked out of both inns days earlier, and among their number were John and Lavinia Fisher. They ordered Dave Ross to leave, and when he hesitated, they rushed forward to beat him. According to Ross's sworn statement, Lavinia herself choked him and shoved his head through a window before he managed to scramble away and run for his life. Hours later, a solo traveler, John Peoples, stopped at Six Mile House. Remember him? In the other version of this story, he wanted a place to stay and only lived to tell the tale because he didn't drink Lavinia's oleander tea. Well, according to his own words, he just wanted to water his horse but he was only at the inn a moment when he was surrounded by the same mob who'd attacked Ross. They ordered Peoples to hand over whatever money he was carrying, then beat him when he didn't comply fast enough. Like Ross, Peoples got away, but two of the group followed on horseback. They caught up with him and, at gunpoint, relieved him of the $35 to $40 he had. What's crucial here is that both men lived to tell the tale. David Ross and John Peoples made it back to Charleston and reported what happened to them, spurring Sheriff Nathaniel Green Cleary into action. He gathered up what the Charleston Courier described as a large party of gentlemen and rode for the Six Mile House. When this new gang, which I promise is the last one, arrived at the inn, the people inside surrendered without resistance. 
While they were bundled into the paddy wagon to make the six-mile journey into the city, some of Cleary's men searched the property. But unlike the earlier version of the story, they didn't find a cellar full of bodies. They did find part of a body. It's just that it was the hide of a cow, matching the description of one stolen from a nearby farm. After that, the sheriff's posse burned the inn to the ground, not bothering to remove any of the furniture or possessions inside. If the Fishers had lived at the inn, their home was gone now. Although they had bigger problems to worry about, because this was the 1800s and the crimes they were accused of were a capital offense. More immediately though, they had to contend with their new accommodation, the Old City Jail. And let me tell you, this was not a place you wanted to be. The building was apparently designed to house around 130 inmates at a time, but was often crammed with way more than that, topping out at over 300. Men and women shared cells, and there was no running water or plumbing of any kind. The floors were covered in wood chips, which served as the softest bed prisoners could expect, and often the only toilet they'd have access to. Assaults were commonplace at the jail, which was open to the elements, meaning it got very hot in the summer and freezing cold in winter months. Insects and rodents had the run of the place, and punishments that could reasonably be called torture weren't out of the question. But like Charleston law enforcement, we're gonna leave the Fishers at the jail for the time being. Because across town, the district coroner received a tip that there was a body buried in the woods near where Six Mile House had, until recently, stood. Curious and probably eager to do his duty, the coroner set out for the property. It seems the Fisher's Inn still had secrets to give up. In a moment, the bodies at Six Mile House. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Now, the birth of a true crime legend. In February of 1819, Charleston's county coroner rushed to the still smoldering ruins of Six Mile House. When he reached the site, he headed into the forest, following the directions to where he'd been told there was a body hastily buried beneath the trees. After a short search, he found the unmistakable signs of a recently dug grave. And when he plunged his own shovel into the earth, he was probably surprised to find not one, but two bodies lying side by side. The first was a white man who died of gunshot wounds just over a week earlier. 
He'd been placed in a crudely made wooden box by presumably whoever killed him. Next to the makeshift coffin were the skeletal remains of a young black woman. Educated guesswork put her death at some two years prior, though how she died remains a mystery. Unfortunately, few would have been concerned with the discovery of a black woman in an unmarked grave. That was par for the course for enslaved people. However, nor did anyone seem concerned about the death of the man in the box because no one was ever charged with his murder. It wasn't even written up as a crime, so we don't really know what happened there. Though it's entirely possible that the man was killed by bandits of some kind, perhaps even the gang John and Lavinia Fisher were seemingly a part of. And speaking of the Fishers, while the coroner wrote off the discovery of the two bodies at Six Mile House, the married couple were progressing through what passed for the criminal justice system at the time. In March, a judge declared that there was enough evidence to hold the pair for trial. Then in May, they were indicted for assaulting David Ross. However, according to records, the attack on John Peoples was not included in their charges. That same month, a judge found the Fishers guilty as charged, and they were sent back to the city jail to await sentencing. But their lawyer told the court that they'd be appealing, so their sentencing was delayed until the appeals court convened the following January. But it seems like the Fishers weren't confident in their lawyer's abilities to sway the court. So in September of that year, John, Lavinia, and one of their co-accused, Joseph Roberts, hatched an escape plan. On the night of the 13th, Roberts and John fed a rope of tied-together sheets down the side of the four-story building. Roberts made it to the ground, but the fabric tore as John scrambled down. That left Lavinia stranded in the jail. John and Roberts could have left anyway. They were free and clear, but John was apparently devoted to his wife. So the men hung around, presumably trying to come up with a plan to rescue Lavinia. But before they could, they were found and taken back into custody. After that, it was pretty much all over. In January, the couple made their appeal, which was denied, and they were formally sentenced to hang. But for some reason, as Bruce Orr points out, the crimes they were sentenced for no longer mentioned the assault of David Ross. Instead, they were sentenced for highway robbery, and John Peoples was the victim in question. Why that was isn't clear, but it's strange, right? The only explanation I really have for that is that it was a different time. Record keeping wasn't what it is these days, and maybe there was a touch of corruption playing a part in the whole thing. Perhaps the sheriff wanted to make it clear he was cleaning up the specific issue of robbery. Who knows? Anyway, the date was set for the following month, and the countdown began. The Fishers made appeals to Governor John Geddes, hoping for a pardon, but the best they got was a two-week stay of execution. It seemed like Geddes agreed with clergy members and the several respectable community members who spoke up for the couple. They needed time to prepare for death but no one was under any illusion that they could be saved. Well, no one apparently except for Lavinia. John Fisher seemed to accept his fate and met with a reverend who was intent on saving their souls in the eyes of their God. But Lavinia wasn't having any of it. She had all her hopes pinned on a last minute pardon. She seemed convinced that the government would never execute a woman. 
She remained steadfast in that belief right up until the execution day dawned. On February 18, 1820, a huge crowd gathered to see the unusual spectacle of a woman being hanged. That morning, Lavinia was terrified. She knew that reprieve was unlikely. John walked up the gallows steps of his own volition, but his wife had to be dragged. On the platform, she apparently held out her arms to the crowd and begged them to rescue her. It was a desperate, painful hope. But it was no good. What could anyone do, even if they wanted to? As the moment drew nearer, John urged Lavinia to make peace with God, but she refused, and I can't really blame her for that. Then, when a reverend suggested she repent and prepare for death, Lavinia allegedly uttered her now infamous words, Cease, I will have none of it. Save your words for others that want them, but if you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me, I'll carry it. Moments later, a relative calm overcame Lavinia. She still called out for mercy, but she directed her pleas toward heaven, as if she finally accepted that there'd be no earthly salvation for her. In his final statement, John proclaimed his and his wife's final innocence and offered forgiveness to those who had wronged them. Then, with an almost serene smile playing across Lavinia's face, the executioner lowered hoods down over the couple's heads. A signal came from the sheriff, and the trap door fell. For Lavinia, it was over in an instant. So it seems somewhat ironic that her story has lived on for centuries. At least, it sort of has. Because remember the first version I told you earlier? For years, that's been the prevailing account of Lavinia Fisher. To so many people, she was a ruthless serial killer. The country's first. She and her husband filled a cellar with bodies. And she went to her death dressed like a bride and eager to meet the devil. But although that's the juicier tale, I'm going to argue that it's almost entirely bogus. And in case you don't believe me, let's break it down a bit more, shall we? First off, let's take the claim that a cellar at Six Mile House contained the remains of dozens of the Fisher's victims. We can discount that idea pretty easily because there's no official record of that number of bodies being found at the property. The only corpses anywhere near the inn were the two dug up in the forest. So where did the idea of a cellar come from? Well, the first mention of it apparently popped up a decade after the Fishers were executed. In 1830, Peter Nielsen wrote about the case, claiming that he was in Charleston during the ordeal. In his account, Nielsen detailed the discovery of a cellar full of bodies that were so mutilated, it was impossible to determine just how many victims there were. As to why Nielsen might have fabricated this disturbing image, Bruce Orr points out that the Scottish expat made money writing penny dreadfuls, which were cheap, sensational storybooks intended to provoke and spook. It seems possible, likely even, that his account of the crime might have been exaggerated to appeal to similar audiences. And from there, the Nielsen tale seemed to replace any verifiable facts about the Fishers. 
If you need more convincing, we can look at the statements of both David Ross and John Peoples, the two men who were attacked at Six Mile House. In neither of their accounts is there mention of a cellar or a trapdoor, and for that matter, nor is there anything about cups of poisoned tea. As for the other, more salacious parts of the story, I can't tell you where they came from, but you know how it goes. The more often a story is told, the more likely it is that details will shift in the retelling. So over the years, Lavinia Fisher became a seducer of men, a vixen who beguiled and bewitched her victims, then handed them to her husband. And if that's the story you believe, you might think that she got what was coming to her. As for the execution, I'm sorry to have to tell you that she didn't wear her wedding gown on the big day. Aside from anything else, we know that the Six Mile House was burned down after her arrest. So where would she have gotten it from? No, I think that idea came from the fact that Lavinia and John wore simple white shifts when they were hanged. You can imagine how easily that outfit became a dramatic wedding gown as people whispered about the story over the decades. And if you're still not convinced that Lavinia wasn't a serial killer, maybe you can trust the charges against her. There was assault and highway robbery, which were more than enough to earn her a place on the gallows, but no charges of murder. Surely if there had been anything to even remotely link her to murder, she would have been tried for that, right? After looking at both versions of the story, I'm definitely coming down on the side of not guilty. At least, none of the things history has lumped her with. Lavinia Fisher was not America's first serial killer. She didn't poison anyone. And while we're clearing things up, her husband was devoted to her to the end and didn't try to foist blame onto her in his final moments. So where does that leave us at the end of her story? Well, like every woman we've discussed this month, Lavinia was a victim of her time. Yes, she probably resorted to crime to get by, but you could make the case that the punishment didn't match the offense. And as the years flew by, facts fell away, replaced by chilling rumor and urban legend. She evolved from highway bandit to serial killer to ghost, one who haunts the jail where she spent the last year of her life. Of course, I can't tell you that Lavinia was totally innocent because the evidence suggests that she was, at the very least, a member of a violent gang. But did she deserve to die? Were the conditions she faced at the old city jail in any way acceptable? I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say no to both of those. As to whether or not she lives on as a ghost, I'll leave that up to you. But I'll say this, if this series has taught us anything, it's that the scary stories people tell about the women we've met are reductive. They whittle away at the robust truth of a person's whole life until all we have is a spooky woman in a period costume. And that doesn't seem right to me. It sure as hell is something else, though. Haunting. Thanks again for tuning in to this last episode of our Female Criminals Halloween special. We'll be back next week with a new episode. 
For more information on Lavinia Fisher, amongst the many sources we used, we found Six Miles to Charleston, the true story of John and Lavinia Fisher by Bruce Orr, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joel Callen, edited by Kate Gallagher, fact-checked by Katherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Vanessa Richardson.